From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. We now hear the word of the Lord, a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. He told another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the largest of all vegetable plants. It becomes a tree, so the birds in the sky command rest on its branches. He told them yet another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast had worked its way through all the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that somebody treasure that somebody hid in a field which someone else found and covered up. Full of joy, the finder sold everything and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one very precious pearl, he went and sold all that he owned and bought that pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that people threw into the lake and gathered all kinds of fish. When it, was full, they pulled, pulled, they, when it was full, they pulled it to the shore where they sat down and put the good fish together into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. That's the way it will be at the end of the present age. The angels will go out and separate the evil people from the righteous people and will throw the evil ones into a burning furnace. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? They said to him, yes. Then he said to them, therefore, every legal expert who has been trained as a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings old and new things out of their treasure chest. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thank you. Well, good morning, Church on Morgan. Wow, okay, that's pretty good. <clears throat> 9 a.m. service didn't respond to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Spencer, as I said before. Um, I'm from neighbor to neighbor, but uh, the truth is that I'm just another guy up here in the long list of guest preachers buying some time for your pastor to have a vacation. <laughs> so if you're new here, I'm sorry. I don't know when the pastor's coming back. Um, but if he doesn't, uh, you guys got the best deal in the century, and Sam's now here, am I right? Wow. The first service liked you a little bit better. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. I get to come here once a year. Um, I work with Neighbor to Neighbor. We're one of your local partners here and been so for about three or four years. Um, and it's honestly uh, seen lots of church nonprofit uh, partnerships and um, just really proud of kind of the fruitful back and forth we have. Um, and just thankful for, for each of you and for your staff and for OGs like Kylie, who've really made a lot of things happen um, in that partnership to happen. And so um, it's always an honor to get to come up here and share a little bit of time with you. A little bit about Neighbor to Neighbor for those of you who this may be new. 
Um, there's kind of two wings to our plane. The first wing of our plane being that we do a lot of after-school youth academic mentoring, which only is powered by amazing volunteers like you who give up one hour of their week. It's the best volunteer gig in Raleigh. Um, to a student who is two grade levels behind or more in math and or reading. And the reason why that's kind of the target is because that's at the point about which kids kind of fall below this metric where there's only about a 25% chance of them graduating when they're that far behind. Kind of goes out of the grasp of the teacher's ability to manage both the classroom that she has, teaching third grade, and being able to catch up somebody who's reading or, or, or doing math on a first grade level up to the speed that they need to be at. And so Neighbor to Neighbor steps in to fill that gap. We empower uh, volunteers like yourself who have forgotten how to do math and have forgotten how to spell. Um, we, we take that uh, hard work and make it easy for you to just kind of show up and be the champion. And so really what we're trying to do is create a safe space for kids to fail. Really that it's one of the most embarrassing things to be called upon and read in front of your class and not be able to say that big word, that everybody kind of chuckles and laughs, right? And so a mentor creates a space in which that student can fail and fail better and get back to grade level. And one of the beautiful things is that kind of love and that type of relationship really expedites the process in which kids get back to grade level. And so kids at Neighbor to Neighbor grow three times faster than the national after-school average. Not because we have any magic sauce, but it's because people show up and say, I'm gonna love this kid. And there's just something about that that an iPad or a computer can't do. And so we're just really appreciative to many of you in this room who are mentors. We love our Church on Morgan mentors, and we're hoping to get a couple more of you this year. Um, and the other wing of our plan is Neighbor Enterprises. Uh, we run three employment social enterprises, Neighbor Moving, Neighbor Lawn Care, Neighbor Cleaning. Anybody in here use one of those services? Okay, a couple. Okay, awesome. Um, we had about like 15 in the first, so you guys got to use our Neighbor Enterprises. Um, our employment social enterprises are a way for us to create living wage jobs in our community for people who face barriers to living wage employment. Um, and so it's also a way for the Raleigh community to say that, you know what, I need my house cleaned. My marriage is going to fall apart if we don't. Um, we've actually gotten that feedback before. Somebody wrote us a note. It might have been somebody from here. I don't know. But they wrote, they're like, neighbor cleaning has literally saved our marriage. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, or if you're like really tired of like your lawn care company, you now now have a in the marketplace of Raleigh, a lawn care company that you know that the people who are servicing your property are being taken care of, they're given wraparound support services, and they're being paid a living wage. So we start all of our employees off at $19 an hour, no matter their prior experience or history, and we try to work them up from there. And so um, whether it's your business or your personal home, uh, luckily, thanks to Kylie, the, uh, uh, this place trusts um, neighbor cleaning and lawn care to come and service this property. So every night, this place gets cleaned by a gentleman named Alan. Um, and mops this place, and uh, when the kids spill the, the, the communion blood all over the floor, it gets <laughs> souped up. So, yeah, that, that's what we got going on there. Uh, Neighbor Neighbor's been around for 25 years. Me and Brandon were just, uh, just joking. He used to play in our basketball league when he was in high school. That's how long Neighbor Neighbor's been around. If you can imagine, uh, Brandon had, you know, like gelled hair like me. He had like, he wore like a sleeveless basketball jersey. And even then he still had his acoustic guitar, but he played basketball at Neighbor Neighbor when he was a kid. So been doing community development for a long time. Um, that's enough about Neighbor to Neighbor. Uh, we're just so thankful for this partnership. Um, at Easter, you guys help us purchase a big 26-foot moving truck. It's really vastly expedited our ability to kind of do larger moves and to send out more crews. Um, during the gala last year, we raised money to build our first kind of concept of a 
transitional house in which we're building a duplex with six rooms that we can kind of help people pay a lower rent to save enough money to get their own apartment or place. Um, and also you've invited our kids into your kids camp. I got to hang out at kids camp. My son Liam's here. He went to kids camp. Hey, Liam. And, <laughs> and uh, we had the best time. I got pied in the face. I don't know how the staff set that up. Um, that's a story for another time. But I loved getting to know a lot of the kids here. Um, so just know that I carry a lot of love in my heart for this congregation and for your staff. Um, and I really uh, do not take it lightly that I get to come here and be partnered with you all and representing our organization. So we have a doozy today. We had a lot of parables. We're not going to go through all of them for the sake of time. Um, but one of the interesting things, when the people started asking, specifically Jesus' disciples, asking Jesus why he always spoke in parables, why are you always being so mysterious? Why do you not just speak it plain? Jesus said this, I speak in parables because though seeing... The people do not see, though hearing, they do not understand. Sounds like my wife talking about me the first years of our marriage. <clears throat> She's here. She nodded. I, I was trying to decide if I was going to tell that joke for the second service, because the first service she wasn't here, but she goes, it's confessions of a bad husband. <clears throat> um, and then Jesus ends with this. So though seeing, they do not see, though hearing, they do not hear or understand. He says, their hearts have become calloused. And I love this image of a calloused heart. A callous being a thickened or hardened area of the skin that has experienced a lot of trauma or friction. Right? If I, if I had you meditate for a second, you could think about different calluses on your heart. Different times and places in which, whether it was family, friend, or maybe even yourself, where you were not loved the way that you deserved. Somebody let you down. Somebody took advantage of you. Somebody manipulated you. Somebody lied to you. Uh, somebody didn't show up when you needed them. Right? Each of you, if I really pushed you, you could feel and sense and name the calluses on your heart. And if we work Jesus' statement backwards, a calloused heart, he says, makes it hard to see beyond what we see and makes it hard to hear beyond what we hear. In a world where we must read between the lines, interpret complex social situations, making sense of ourselves, our marriages, our relationships, uh, strangers, our neighbors, a calloused heart seems to in some way hinder our ability to perceive. There's been a lot of recent studies on the important role our imagination plays in allowing us to completely see a whole picture. Cognitive scientists tell us that in the human mind, the imagination plays the role of the architect. It builds bridges between the information our senses bring in and is trying to complete the gap of what we know and understand and what we don't know and don't understand. And there's tons of experiments to show this. They'll hook your brain up to a computer and they'll flash faces or familiar noises uh, in, in front of your face and they'll watch how the brain lights up. They'll see how you respond to different stimuli. And for some of us, when we see a particular face, a fear lights up. For others, it's compassion. For others, that same face may exude a flight response. For others, we may just be numb, like just nothing happens. It's like a, seeing a cow in a field. Just, you just drive right by. The imagination is taking what we know, what we've experienced, what we've heard from others or in the news, how we physically felt in our own histories. And upon seeing a face the brain has never seen before, your imagination is helping you make sense of who you're looking at. Which begs the question... Although we see, do we really see? And although we hear, do we really hear? 
Early this morning, while showering, my imagination was firing on how this would go today. Based on my prior experiences here, my own ego, my own self-talk in my head, I was able to picture that nobody would laugh at my corny jokes. I was able to, 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 to sense what would go right and maybe what would go wrong. My imagination was trying to picture what was going to happen this morning. It's easy to dismiss the imagination as a tool just for artists, for dreamers. It's what we tell our kids to do. Have a good imagination. Use your imagination. But I hope what we're seeing here is it's not merely a supporting role. It's central to how we perceive, understand, and interpret ourselves and the world around us. The theologian Walter Brueggemann said this in one of his books, each generation's most fiercely contested battlefield is the one for our collective imagination. So no matter what generation you're from, what nation you live, there is a vested interest in to shape the imaginations of the populace. And this can be for big things and for small things. And so, his, so these structures, right, try to build narratives and stories to help us interpret the world. What bag looks good and what bag doesn't? What shirt looks good on your skin color and what doesn't? Uh, where you should go to eat tonight? Uh, how you should see yourself? How you should perceive uh, the woman's body, the man's body? All these different things, right? And Walter Brueggemann teaches us that it's here that the role of the prophet comes in. It's not the role of the prophet to actually physically change politics, but it's the prophet's role to poetic, poetically reclaim the imagination of God's people. Because over time, our imaginations, and Walter Brueggemann uses this word, our imaginations have become totalized. Totalized meaning that our imaginations over time get limited they're restricted to certain perspectives. Our imaginations begin to lack a competition of ideas. Our imagination starts losing creativity and, create, and critical thinking. Action on large societal tasks just seem impossible. What's the point? I can't help. I can't help this person. In the midst of a totalized imagination, the prophet comes into our dark room and opens the blinds. Let's a little light in granting us access to see ourselves, our situations, our story, our relationships, and their future in light of God's will and God's incoming kingdom. The prophet gives linguistic capacity to confront despair rather than be surrounded by it. So with metaphors, narratives, monologues, poems, stories, art, the prophet soaks our calloused hearts in warm water, and if necessary, punches through the lies of self-deception, blindness, our repressed spirits to make room for newness. And in tracing this line of prophets, we find in the path the person and teachings of Jesus today. Just as the prophets of old used powerful narratives and metaphors, Jesus uses, like today, parables. If you're like me, you grew up being taught that parables were just witty one-liners or short stories with a clever spiritual twist at the end as if it was just a knock-knock joke as if they were just cute Daniel Tiger-esque jingles. Anybody in here watch Daniel Tiger? More people watched it last time. Oh, okay, here we go. It's like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, one of my favorites is, close your eyes and think of something happy. Think, think, think about your favorite. There's all, every, every episode, I'm just like, man, Daniel Tiger's really making me a better parent. He's giving me a, <laughs> like, giving me a jingle for every complex situation I'm in with Liam or Owen, you know? I'm like, okay, that's good. And I think sometimes that's how we come to this scripture, right? This is how we come to all these parables. I've heard this over and over and over and over again. They begin to lose their power. 
But if these were just spiritual lessons that everyone should agree with, here's the question. Why was the reaction to throw Jesus off a cliff in Luke 4? Or for his hometown to disown him at the end of this very chapter? For the multitudes to turn away from him in John 6, for leaders to discredit him in Mark 3, to publicly question his authority in Matthew 21, to claim his teachings are too hard in Mark 10, to conspire against him in Mark 11, to begin plots to kill him in John 10, we could go on. The battle for your imagination is not child's play. Imagination is power. To bring it some relevant context, think about Mother Teresa and how she ruptured the small imagination of the caste system, which had placed people in the various castes. Gandhi reclaiming the totalized imagination of those under colonial rule to see more for themselves. Martin Luther King reclaimed the imagination of a country that thought an integrated social life was impossible. You can see how easy, as a collective group, we can just let things kind of settle as just, that's normal. And so this is going to sound crazy, but I like to propose that I think Jesus' teachings were way more radical than his actions. For his teachings articulated new systems and rules for which his actions and miracles just momentarily hinted at. It's one thing to have dinner with outcasts, but it's far more radical to go around village by village announcing that the distinctions in your society that makes insiders and outsiders is obsolete in God's eyes. It's one thing to touch a leper one time but it's quite another to go around announcing that the rules and conditions in a society that has made somebody unclean were irrelevant to God. Just as powerful as Jesus' parables were for shifting societal structures, as I'm showing here, today we're going to see how they're so powerful for shifting personal ones too. And so this is what we have today. We're going to look at three of the parables very briefly. The first one being, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field to which somebody found and in his joy went and sold everything and purchased the field. I love this because here the kingdom of heaven isn't depicted as a grand visible castle. It's not a prize awarded to the most pious or religious. Instead, it's a hidden treasure. It's unnoticed and undervalued. It's lying beneath the surface of a mundane field that you pass every day. It's like what we sung in the liturgy earlier. This right here, right now, is the gate of heaven. Moses had to learn this before anything cool in Exodus. In the burning bush, he approaches the burning bush, and the bush says, Moses, take off your sandals. And he's like, why? And the bush says, you're standing on holy ground. Nothing about that desert had changed. Moses knew that desert. The only thing that's changing is his perspective. And so you come in, and you're, and you're taught, we practice here, that everywhere you stand is a gate for heaven. Take your shoes off. Show some respect. See that person differently. Jesus proposes that the kingdom of heaven is a discovery waiting for anyone willing to do a little digging in the mundane. And this is really hard to do because life is difficult and we have kids and we have work and we have bills. But somewhere in there, and I don't know where it is for you, this parable is telling me that the gate of heaven is somewhere in there. And I love this. It says the man did this in joy, not his conviction. He sells everything, trading his visible wealth for a hidden treasure. This person has broken their imagination free from society's totalized idea on what is valuable. He no longer fears what others think or say or believe. He no longer needs to show his value. He's found it within, so it's worth everything else. 
The second parable that I want to look at is the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had to buy it. This is where we have this beautiful inversion from the first. It sounds similar to the first, but in this parable, the kingdom of heaven isn't the treasure, it's now the seeker. So heaven may be a treasure under the surface in the first parable, but paradoxically here we're finding out that the kingdom of heaven is also out on the hunt for you. We have an experienced trader here with a good eye for value. He's seen and collected many pearls across the world, each with its own unique beauty and falls, but something flaws, but something crazy happens here. Upon finding you, the divine isn't distant or indifferent. He's not rummaging for coupons or the app that gives you 10% off. He's not looking for the best deal or a trade. This merchant reacts irrationally. He sells his whole stock, his whole business, just so that he can have this one pearl. He, say, he, 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 he brings to the table his whole reputation, his whole ability to do business, his whole identity. This parable is showing us that the kingdom sees value a little bit differently. It's my hope that for some of us where we maybe resonated with the first parable of like, oh, this is great, I just need to do a little more activity, I need to get in my Bible more, maybe a little more prayer, a little more silence. If that's you, the second parable right here may be the one that you really need to listen to. To think about what it feels like to have that kind of value. That a merchant would look upon you and say you're worth everything else. This is the divine gaze of your belovedness. That's really uncomfortable to spend a little time every day submitting yourself to the divine gaze that calls you the beloved. But think about that, that this is the absurdity of the gospel, that this is what love is, that, that God will forsake everything just for you. Can you sit yourself under that gaze? Quit all that religious activity, but to just allow yourself to know your inherent belovedness, all the ways that you've been told, this is how you produce value and check your slack and, and, and be efficient and be productive and boom, 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 at business every day. This is the only way you're gonna produce value. Boom, 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 boom. This meeting and this meeting and this meeting, this meeting. What does it mean to just sit under the gaze and say, with no activity at all, I'm the most important thing under the gaze of God? Can you receive that this morning? Lastly, we have the kingdom of heaven as a net. The Greek tells us specifically that it's a dragnet. And I don't fish, but I asked ChatGPT about it. <laughs> a dragnet isn't an ordinary fishing tool. You would choose it strategically if you're trying to comb the seabed to widely gather everything in its path. This kingdom as a dragnet is bringing everything along from the deep. It says in other translations that it's bringing every kind with it. The kingdom as a dragnet should challenge our imagination's narrow perceptions and rigid borders, reminding us that God's expansive reach is a refusal to operate within our society's standards of who's in and who's out. And I can stay there, but this is where we get to the hard part. What do we do about the evil fish and the good fish and the, the good and bad language? This is where I think you'll be surprised too. All this phrasing is identical to a few chapters back where Jesus is talking about fruit-bearing trees. Will you bear fruit? The metric of separation isn't about a new social hierarchy in heaven or previous statuses to get you in a certain, a certain box seat. It, it isn't about which sins you did and didn't do. The heaven, 
the kingdom of heaven hinges on one's ability to produce fruit. Can you abide in Christ? And if you were in Sunday school, you would know these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. On a good day, I have three of those. (laughs) Jesus isn't trying to give you some formula to figure out who in this room is good and bad. Are you in this or not? Is there fruit coming from your activity, from your words, from your actions or not? When people are around you, the way your wife receives you, the way a wife receives a husband, the way your kids experience you, is there love, is there gentleness, is there kindness? Do they look at you and sense a sense of self-control? Are you abiding in Christ or are you just showing up? What fruit is being born? That's what this parable is getting at. The last thing is that Jesus says that this, there's an emphasis that all the sorting, whatever sorting is going to happen, he says it's going to happen at the end of ages. It's not your problem anyway. It's all the quickness to figure out, you know, whether you subscribe to a Fox or a CNN or ESPN or ABC or NBC, whatever, I don't know, whatever acronym of news you, 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 know, you like to align yourself with. There is a shaping of your imagination to do a grand sorting. And Jesus here is saying, that ain't your business. Sit down somewhere. It's for the angels to do at the end of the ages. It's not even for the dragnet of the kingdom of God to do. The kingdom of God is pulling us all together, and it's not letting a little couple fish sweep out because they were evil. It's bringing everybody together. And this is a beautiful thing. I like to joke that the kingdom of heaven is the most elite and exclusive country club in the world. The only way you get into this exclusive country club is that you allow everybody else in too. The exclusiveness is the ability to make the exclusiveness obsolete. It's hard to get in the kingdom of God because there are people that you don't want to belong. There's people that you don't want to get in. There's people that you're just kind of like, that guy just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'll love the sinner, but I won't love the sin. We want to make the frameworks. And Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Let's close. These parables... I hope this morning, as they were for me as I studied this this week, stones launch into the still lake of your imagination, creating just a couple of ripples. I'm not a prophet, but hopefully I shook the waters just a tiny bit. As in the first parable, may you journey within to find the kingdom small, hidden within the field of your own heart, of your own kitchen, of your own playroom. In this church, may you you sense the kingdom small here within yourself. And then as in the second parable, may you discover and find yourself tiny, a little pearl in the hand of an exquisite merchant who knows what value looks like and says, I know what those kids said about you in middle school. And yeah, you're 35 and you still think about it. I know how that work review went and how that made you feel. I know that argument you got in with your husband or your wife or your kids. I know how you're feeling right now, but you're the pearl that I'm going to forsake everything else for. Allow that to untie some stuff in you. And with those two parables, is it just as starts to feel like maybe this whole kingdom of heaven is pivoting just around you and you only, may heaven reveal itself a dragnet indiscriminately dragging you along, swirling in the murky waters beside all types of unfamiliar creatures and unexpected litter of all kinds. May it be here and there that your imagination is reclaimed by Christ, 
that there's a new intention and tenacity. I got to do, uh, Sam allowed me to uh, participate in communion with the kids here, and I, I met Ida Mae at, 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 at kids camp, and she comes in, she takes the bread, and she just full fist into the blood. And I'm like, yes, I mean, that's what we're looking for. And I was like, I just wrote that in my sermon. I said, this is what we should talk about. That is the type of, that is what the prophet, that's what Jesus is trying to do here is like, wake up. It's easy to just follow the liturgy and the words on the word, but dip that body into that blood until you realize that we are one. And realize, practice the feeling of being one here so that when you go out and you see that strange looking person on the street that I don't know what they're yelling about and what they're on, but I know the dragnet is trying to pull us together too. And I don't really know what to do with that right now. But I'm not going to let my mind just ignore, right? To feel, to no longer become numb. My hope is for myself and for you that as Jesus spoke about the people saying, though seeing they do not see and though hearing they do not hear, may he with you and myself soon say, ah, Here's one of my children who's beginning to see with the eyes of the soul and listen with the ears of the heart. May it be so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.